Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and as always, I'm joined by Hugh Osborne and Andrew Rushby. This month on Exocast 45B, we're going to be talking with Dr. Baptiste Jeunot all about things that are icy. But also feel free to check out this month's other episodes, Exocast 45C, where we will ask the question, how many exoplanets are there really out there? And Exocast 45D, where we cover the latest in exoplanet news. But to kick off Exocast 45B, how many times can we say Exocast 45 in one (laughs) sentence? We are joined by another pioneering exoplanet researcher. So over to Andrew to introduce them. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, So as you mentioned, this month we are joined by Dr. Baptiste de Jeunot, who is a research associate in the Department of Earth and Space Science at the University of Washington. So Baptiste's research is primarily concerned with ice in all its many forms, as you said, but particularly the context uh, of habitability uh, in deep extraterrestrial oceans, icy moons and water-rich exoplanets. So bienvenue, Baptiste. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. That's a pleasure to join uh, you with this amazing podcast that I'm following for the last few years now. Oh, that's a fantastic introduction. Always a good idea to get those uh, that, that flattery in first. Uh, but we're here to talk about you, uh, not us. So let's start right at the beginning. Okay, you're, you're an ice scientist. And I think a lot of our listeners are generally from the astro side of things. They might not be that familiar with the wonders of, of, the, of, of ice and the cryosphere and how and why studying ice in the planetary context is, is even done. So if possible, could you give us a quick overview of your research and particularly what has you interested at the moment by maybe starting off with telling us a little bit about the cryosphere itself. Yeah, so um, I guess one of the main things to start with is to agree on the definition of ice, because, you know, it's like for uh, metals for astrophysicists or metals for chemists, you know, these are not (laughs) the same definition. (laughs) And so um, ice, uh, you know, like if you ask to like, you know, like the common people, they will probably tell you it's just the solid form of water. Uh, but when you talk about ice in a planetary um, uh, context, what you're really talking about is uh, the solid form of uh, volatile species like water, you know, uh, methane, um, carbon dioxide, uh, ammonia, uh, etc. And these, uh, when they um, form these uh, solid form, they will form like either crystals or uh, amorphous materials. But uh, at the nanometric scale, they will keep uh, their uh, molecular uh, structure. That means that you will still be able to see the molecule inside the solid at the um, you know at the macro scale, and so that's why we call them molecular solids. And so, so when we talk about ice, generally uh, in planetary science, we talk about really like all of these uh, you know forms of uh, different volatile ices. So, you know, you have to make the distinction of which composition you're talking about usually. So, uh, and as you said, like, I think it was a few weeks ago, you had someone who came to talk about water and uh, they make the very good point that water in general is probably one of the most common molecule in the universe. Uh, 
uh, and uh, it's probably closely followed by all these other uh, ice-forming volatile species, you know, ammonia, methane, CO2, etc. Or mm-hmm. um, uh, and so it's pretty reasonable to expect to expect ice like these forms of ice to be everywhere not just in our solar system but like uh, in all of the uh, exoplanet system that we're finding so this is why this makes it like such a very you know interesting um uh, subject and uh, also one thing we can mention is that uh, we actually found uh, uh ices and here particularly water ice uh, pretty much on every major planetary object in the solar system, except for Venus. But water is everywhere, and yeah. ice is everywhere as well. Like, we even found it, like, in these craters that are always in the um, uh, perpetual shadows at the poles of Mercury and the Moon. Uh, and we, of, of course, find it, like, on the surface of Mars, of Earth, of course, uh, etc. So th- these are uh, things that uh, make makes it, like, so relevant for... Uh, you know, when we're studying planetary science, you, you need to study ice when you're studying planetary science because uh, what you call cryosphere, you know, like this environment where you have a lot of ice around, are pretty much on, you know, you, you can expect them on pretty much any type of uh, planetary system. Okay, well, I was kind of interested in your uh, approach to studying ice, right? So it's quite a, a multidisciplinary approach. And of course, I went on your website and I had a little look around. I saw your pictures, I saw your papers. So you've been in the lab on field work and also doing modeling and software development. So what is it about ice that, that requires that you do all of these things, right? Why do you, what's, what's happening in the lab? What's happening in the field? What are you modeling? So uh, I must uh, say that most of the field work that I've been doing was not directly to my research. It has been uh, to either assist colleagues uh, with their own research on glaciology. Uh, so I have done a, a bit of field work uh, studying uh, you know, uh, glaciers in uh, the French Alps, for example. Uh, but this was mostly uh, because I have a geology background as well. So, you know, I can uh-huh. operate in the field somehow. <laughs> I can, you know, they ask me to carry stuff around and being dropped ah, uh, by an helicopter okay. on the top of a glacier. <laughs> at, you know, it's hard to say no. You know, you don't need yeah, like a lot cool. of uh, yeah. training to do that. Just like making sure like to not... Uh, being too scared on the top of the glaciers, <laughs> which was very impressive the first time you arrived there, I must admit. But yeah, no, it's kind of much. But you're definitely in the lab, right? You're definitely yes. making stuff in a lab. Yeah, I guess maybe that's where we could start. Yeah, yeah. So, so my research. So I'm gonna uh, just back up a little bit. My research is mostly sure. on H2O ice in the end. So okay. I'm not studying too much the the other forms of uh, of ices, like for example, ammonia, methane, etc. So. Uh, and the general idea is that uh, we I'm studying this because uh, these are probably like the uh, 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 the water is probably like the most common uh, component for the hydrospheres uh, of uh, water-rich uh, planetary bodies. And so we have these uh, you know uh, icy moons in our solar system around Jupiter and Saturn. That are like probably composed of like 20, 30, 50% of water by mass. And this is enormous. Like if you compare that to Earth, Earth is less than one per mil of water per mass. So it's extremely dry. Well, Earth is really, really dry. And when we look at all of these <laughs> other planetary bodies, they are really water rich, like we like, like over 10% of water in mass. And so when you have these, uh, uh, this amount of water, uh, they're usually going to be at, you know, um, 
you know, in the outer shells uh, of your planets, because you, after differentiation, you will have the water in like closer to the outside uh, of your planetary bodies, the rock inside, and if you have metals, you'll have like a metallic core uh, at the center. But uh, because you have so much water, the pressure inside uh, these um, uh, what we call hydrospheres are going to rise like over 10 times or sometimes even 100 times or a thousand times the pressure we find uh, at the, for example, at the bottom of the Mariana Trench on Earth. So wow. the condition inside these oceans are totally exotic from what we know in Earth environments. And so we can't study that on Earth because water doesn't exist uh, at, you know, at like, um, uh, adduce uh, temperatures or pressures on Earth. So you have to do it in the lab. And so to do that in the lab, you have to make this super high pressure experiment uh, where you are taking water and compressing it like crazy uh, to reproduce the conditions that we find inside these uh, planets. And this is, you know, where the real fun is because we use like different types of uh, techniques to do that. Uh, there are people who are uh, trying like to compress as hard as possible. Most of the background of your listeners probably in physics, I guess, but not only. So I'm just going to reintroduce what pressure is. <laughs> but pressure is just a force by a surface area. And so if you want to increase the pressure, you either uh, increase the force for the same surface area or you apply the same force on the much smaller surface area. So you can play with both. But generally, you get the much higher pressure by reducing the pressure area and increase the, the, the force as well. And this is what we do. So we have these apparatuses that um, are called diamond anvil cells. So we have these two diamond tips that are facing each other. We have a little flat on top. And you put a sample in between. So you put a, a very tiny drop of water. Here we're talking, you know, a sample size of like size of a human hair. So it's extremely small. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's extremely wow. small. And then you apply pressure on the two diamonds. Then you can achieve like pressures that are like, you know, comparable with way beyond the center of the earth with that. Uh, wow. Yeah, like you can reach like uh, something like uh, halfway inside uh, uh, Neptune or Uranus, for example. Wow, uh, that's incredibly high pressures. Yes, we're talking like hundreds of gigapascals here. Uh, and how much uh, of this sample are we talking about here under those pressures? Ah, the entire. Like, uh, like if you have like uh, your sample that is when you start. Yeah, but how big is that sample? Ah, uh, yeah. So thickness of a human hair. So hundred microns, usually. Okay. <laughs> but the higher the pressure that's, you that's go, that's still like billions of atoms, right? It's oh, like... <laughs> it's much more than that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot of atoms. So. So what happens, right? So I mean, you crush water. Yeah. Does it stay as liquid or does it... Because that's something that no no one outside the lab will have know what the experience is. Yeah. Right? So what happens to the water? So, yeah. So when you compress water, uh, even at room temperature, like if you take like, uh, you know, a droplet of water and compress it like roughly 10 times the pressure at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, it would actually freeze in this hot <laughs> ice. Uh, and uh, I can actually send you pictures if you want. Like, I don't know if you can show it in the podcast or show it on the website, but I can send you pictures because the cool thing with the diamonds is that they're transparent to the visible spectrum. So we can put a microscope and just take pictures of the crystal growing or melting or changing forms, etc. Uh, directly uh, during the experiment. So we can do that, which is 
you know, really exciting when you see that happening. Um, and you have things changing in the order of the, you know, from a few seconds to a minute. So it's actually pretty dynamic. It's really fun to do. So uh, water will freeze, but it will have just not one form, but depending on how much pressure you put and what is the temperature at which you are, uh, you can take like many different forms of ices. So the one we know is called the 1H. Uh, H stands for hexagonal because, you know, like the snowflakes have uh, six branches because it have the uh, crystallographic structure is an hexagonal structure. Uh, but all of these other ices have uh, different crystallographic structures. Some of them are cubic. So you can make these little cubes inside your diamond anvil, which are like really neat. Uh, you can uh, have uh, one that are tetragonal. So it's it's a kind of a rectangle, a rectangular shape. Um, uh, so you have many forms, uh, and yeah, and um, so the idea is to try to study those, to know exactly when they're going to happen, uh, when they're going to be stable, because uh, in these uh, hydrospheres of uh, icy moons and exoplanets, we expect to have like, you know, probably like two, three, or maybe even four different types of ices uh, inside, and they're mm -hmm. all going to have different, uh, you know, structures, but that also means they're going to have different physical properties. So for example, ice 1H, the one that we all know, if you put it in a glass of water, it's going to float, right? But if you do the same with uh, the one that we talked about uh, when you compress uh, water at really high pressure at uh, room temperature, it will form ice 6, uh, and ice 6 is denser than liquid water. So if you had like ice cubes of ice 6, it will fall down at the bottom of your glass. And this is why uh, in exoplanet you will find them, or icy moons, you will find it at the bottom of the ocean because it will become more dense than the liquid water itself. So it had these really weird properties as well that make it like super interesting. Fascinating. So I guess it's the, the next question is then the scaling up of this process, right? So you have your 100 micron sample of, of I6. But if we're expecting, you know, huge cryospheres or, or huge, uh, you know, uh, sheets of ice, I guess, at the bottom of these exoplanetary oceans, this is a scale now where they can start influencing the planetary processes, like how the mm -hmm. ocean is circulating and how stuff is moving between the interior and the exterior. So how might those, how do you see those crusts maybe changing over time or evolving or like, are they recycled in the same way that we would think about silicate rocks on the earth? You know, they're subducted back into the mantle and they come out somehow. Is it analogous to the kind of the continental cycle that we might expect on a terrestrial planet? Okay. Example? So the, um, so there is two part of that question. <laughs> the one on the uh, scalability, on the scalability of what we seeing in the lab and the one on the dynamics. So the, the scalability, uh, this is a very good question. And that's a question that keeps coming because what we're looking is really small. Uh, that said, the, uh, you know, thermodynamics is, uh, you know, is pretty much working the same way. Yeah. It's scalable, right? Yeah. It's pretty <laughs> scalable. Like, you know, when you see something melting, uh, you know, at a given pressure and temperature, you can be pretty sure that it's going to be the same conditions at a larger scale. So, uh, because like we're talking about, um, you, you know, properties that are just scalable in terms of volumes or, um, or, uh, amount of uh, material that you put in the system. So what we're seeing in the lab, uh, we are pretty confident that it's really accurate in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of um, of scalability, because like the properties that we see emerging are like you know uh, emerging properties coming you know from 
thermo like uh, uh, quantum mechanics and thermodynamics. So these are stuff that are already too big uh, compared to the you know like the molecular level. So we can scale them, you know, pretty uh, reliably, I would say. And for the part about dynamics, this is uh, very interesting, and this is the kind of question we are asking ourselves now a lot. Because the viscosities, like the you know mechanical properties of these dices, is also very different, uh, mm-hmm. and we don't really know those properties yet very well. And so, uh, so far, there has been like a few uh, work that has been done on the uh, dynamics of these you know high pressure ices. And uh, when you reach a certain thickness, they would actually start to convect, like you would see uh, inside. Um, you know, you have like solid state convection as you would see, like, for example, in the earth mantle. Uh, so you would have like this giant ice, uh, uh, very thick ice mantle that would, you know, roll around and, you know, potentially bring material from, uh, from, uh, from uh, below, uh, etc. So, yeah, so these are the things that I, th- I, th- I think we can expect. We don't really necessarily have a very good understanding now because uh, we haven't been there. We have very limited uh, data on the interiors, even for icy moons, like uh, the best thing would have been, like for example, like to drop a seismometer, like would be to drop a seismometer on an icy moon, and look if we can see those high pressure ices at all first. Um, so, are they are like uh, you know the icy moons in our solar system expected then to have ice at the bottom of the oceans as well? Because I always thought it was just a an icy crust and then water and then rock. Yeah, so the smaller one like Europa. Uh, uh, don't yeah. have enough pressures inside the hydrosphere to, uh, okay. you know, to have these high pressure ices. But when you uh, reach um, uh, Ganymede, uh, Calisto, or Titan, these are, are uh, almost certainly have high pressure ices at the bottom. We're talking ice five and ice six. Um, no. Yeah, and by the way, the cool. number, the Roman number uh, behind these ices is the number uh, of the discovery. So that's why the 1H is 1. And so the latest one that we discovered last year was 18. So we have 18 forms of uh, <laughs> ices now. And probably more coming. <laughs> so. <laughs> so we expect a lot of the moons in our solar system, and we see that a lot of the moons in our solar system have a lot more ice than, say, something like our moon, which is comparable in size to some of Jupiter's moons. What What kind of situations are we talking about here in terms of titan we know has a surface that is solid it is not an ice surface it is certainly cold um but are you talking about kind of interior structure of these moons as well as something like you said europa and enceladus where there's this crust that we have this knowledge of um and we expect there to be water because we're seeing outgassing from those subsurface oceans for these other planet these other planets they can be planets, uh, for these moons uh, that we've got, where we know that there are solid rock-like surfaces. Are we talking about interior mantles made of ice instead of uh, rocky material like here on Earth? Yeah, so just one thing. the uh, These, uh, you know, like the largest icy moons uh, are actually bigger than Mercury. Ganymede, yes, Titan, they are. Mercury is actually really small. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting yeah. that Jupiter's moons are bigger than planets, yeah. you know. And and Titan and Ganymede in particular are like pretty close to the size of Mars. So, you know, mm-hmm. talking about planets makes sense in that context. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all on you to consider them as like, uh, you know, planetary bodies. That's fine. <laughs> 
So uh, the the uh, so the thing you said about Titan. So actually, Titan surface is icy. The crust of Titan okay. is ice. Is it water ice like it's you've water been talking ice. about, or it, it is water ice it's, like Pluto? So recently, the New Horizons mission revealed mountains and moving structures, essentially hydraulic kind of upwelling in mm-hmm. the the planitia, which is water mountains uh, and water ice is that very similar yeah that is very similar on pluto though like the mountains are ice but the uh, you know the upwelling that they see in the planitia are probably uh, nitrogen ice ah uh, right. but yeah they're ice also you know that this is all this confusion <laughs> about what you call ice and i think that was a very good idea to mention that at the beginning but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah no it's uh, it's uh, so on the surface of titan you have this um uh, ice, uh, water ice uh, crust uh, that probably has like a lot of different other chemicals inside like we're expecting like for example methane uh, to be present like methane ice or even liquid methane to be uh, stable at the surface and we have this flux of organics falling from the atmosphere due to the photochemistry of the upper atmosphere so there is, so probably the titan upper crust is mostly ice but it has like a lot of you know um, uh, uh, you know other uh, components as well that are either coming from underneath or from the top uh, with the photochemistry in the atmosphere. So yeah, so when we're talking about these uh, mantles of ice, we're really talking about you know the uh, the solid uh, uh, or liquid um, uh, upper shells of these bodies will be mostly ice, then a liquid ocean, then a high pressure ices. So that's that's the structure that we expect, for example, for Titan and Ganymede. Uh, we're expecting an ice crust, uh, a water ice crust, then a liquid ocean, probably salty, uh, because we can see that with the um, uh, how they interact with the magnetic field of their uh, host planet, either Saturn or Jupiter, and then you have a high pressure uh, ice layer at the bottom, covering the rocks uh, below it. So. Uh, this yet so this is what we expect and uh, this is uh, something that we take as you know a model to study uh, exoplanets from that because uh, exoplanet we would expect something like somehow similar depending of the on the equilibrium temperature or like the distance to their host star uh, the surface temperature will allow or not to have liquid water or ice if you're like uh, beyond the habitable zone and then you will have the same ID, like you have ice, liquid water, and then uh, high pressure ices at the bottom. And this sounds like it's going to be highly dependent on the formation location of these bodies. Because like you said, we've got Mars, we've got Mercury in the inner solar system that don't have these liquid water yeah. uh, ice boundaries. They don't have this hot ice in their centers. They are rock all the way down. So would it indicators for exoplanets that we might be able to measure... Would that give us some information about their formation locations? Yeah, probably. And uh, like because in the end, the the all that matters is the amount of water that you have. Because the fact that we don't have these oceans or these high pressure ices on Earth or on other rocky planets is because the amount of water is extremely uh, small. And so if you if you have like more volatiles uh, accreted in the either in the early stage or by later delivery. Uh, you know, by comets or uh, or uh, or uh, other ways, uh, you would expect to have like much more water on these planets. And then, because uh, what controls the presence of high pressure ices is just thermodynamics, 
uh, <laughs> as long as it's you just have just thermodynamics, everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's very simple. Yeah. Just a bit of thermodynamics. <laughs> it's not a scary word, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, you mentioned there how the best way to kind of feed back into your models and your lab stuff is if you had a seismometer, right? If you had a, a probe landing on these icy body surfaces. But I'm wondering, like, for exoplanets, obviously that's impossible. That we're never going to put a seismometer on uh, GJ1214 or something. So what's the, what's the possible ways you can study the cryospheres of exoplanets and exomoons yeah. um, without going there, right? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the first thing is to make sure that all of our crazy theories about the hydrospheres are right. And so checking that <laughs> on, you know, our local, uh, our local neighborhood is probably like the best thing to start with. <laughs> so I'm yeah, all for... <laughs> Say okay, we have all of these ideas about like how water behaves at high pressure. Uh, let's uh, try it on an object that actually have these environments and see if we can see it. So that would be the first step. And then if we confirm that, then it makes a lot of sense to expect, uh, you know, like the same physical laws and the same thermodynamics to apply, uh, you know, um, in other uh, place in our galaxy. So. Uh, Sure. Then uh, you're limited by you know observation of uh, of exoplanets, so you're limited pretty much to radius, mass, maybe some atmospheric compositions, or maybe in the future we'll have like a better idea of the atmospheric thicknesses uh, of exoplanets, and that will actually help a lot because then you can have like a model of the atmosphere and tells you like how thick the atmosphere is and uh, you know how much water can you expect uh, depending on the mass. Uh, and the radius uh, of your planet. So this is how you would do it. Like really, like you would be limited with these parameters. But if you have a very good understanding of the uh, interior physics and the behavior of all of these high pressure uh, materials, uh, then the the range of possibility can be uh, decreased significantly. The only thing you need is to have a really good understanding on how materials behave at pressure and temperature, because then you you know you, you can somehow remove some uh, uncertainties and then like limit the range of possibilities quite well. Could you directly detect kind of icy surfaces? Uh, just from reflected spectra or something so that's a very good question I'm not sure Uh, maybe uh, yeah maybe one of you has a response to that like from what I've heard (laughs) it could be possible with uh, (laughs) polarimetry that's what my or friend and colleague Kim Ah. Bont was telling me the other day but um, but yeah no I'm not really sure yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's all about trying to disentangle the surface and the atmosphere, right? And this is something we, we, we mention regularly on the show, whether it's a, a new paper that's come out that's tried to, try to, you know, make some advances uh, in that area, but it, it seems, it seems tricky right now. I think we came to the conclusion that can we ever map an exoplanet? Uh, probably, but it'll take a, a couple of years yet. So you've, you've said that these hot ices can exist, uh, if you have the shell of, cold ice then water and then under that high pressure you've got this hot ice is it possible to form a hot ice without that external shell of ice say for example in the interior of a gas giant planet ah yeah it is uh, so uh, it's even possible uh, so i actually i lied on something it's even possible on earth Batiste. <laughs> on our show <laughs> we actually find this high pressure hot ice on earth as well uh oh, yeah, really? inside diamonds yeah uh, there was oh. a paper two years ago by a colleague in uh, um, 
from the Las Vegas uh, from the Las Vegas University uh, who published this discovery where they found uh, the seventh form of uh, high pressure ice inside a diamond inclusion so it is like a little pockets of fluid inside a diamond that is remnant from the fluid where the diamond form at very high pressures uh, very deep inside the earth and when it came back at the surface the pocket of fluid uh, kept the pressure but the temperature decreased so eventually it froze in these super high pressure ices oh, wow. so if you have diamonds around you might already have like high pressure ices around <laughs> you so, <laughs> so yeah but yeah. that's it here on exocast we're surrounded by diamonds all the oh, time yeah. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know. I, I, I don't have any diamonds i just have diamonds in my lab for the experiment and we usually break them yeah. eventually so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so the so before your question about the other high pressure ices that you could find for example on uh, on a what we call like a, like on a gaseous planet yeah you could you could find that and that's also why we call um possibly uh, you know uh, uh neptune and uranus the ice giant is that it's possible that the uh, uh their inside is actually composed of these of like extremely high pressures and extremely high temperature ices so there will be like solid form of um uh of ice but these are you know it's really hard to call them ice anymore uh from what we understand of the physics of it you know you would have this lattice of uh, oxygen atoms that would form mm -hmm. like somehow a cubic structure and the protons, so the, the hydrogens uh, of the H2O molecule will not be linked to the oxygen anymore, but will be like free flowing uh, inside these lattice structure. So this is really, really where they will have, it, it could become like super conductive, you know, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. this is in the range of and like... You have, you have some kind of flows in there, um, which, you know, we know that Uranus and Neptune have these really weird magnetic fields that have multiple poles and things. Yeah, uh, but that would probably come from the fluid part like you can also have like uh, super you know like uh, high conductivity water fluids at very mm -hmm. high pressures and yep. that probably this nice. because you need you 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 need the uh, you know the, the material to flow to create the magnetic field uh, so for an ice that would not be as uh, easy so so basically you're advocating for an ice giant mission so we can understand more about the ices inside yes. Our ice giants. Yes. I'm with that. Yeah. I was part of uh, the JPL program to design like uh, space missions. Uh, and we designed a mission to uh, Uranus, an orbiter to Uranus. Uh, and we published a paper this year. Uh, I can send it to you if you want. <laughs> it's called Quest. It was. Uh, oh, it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poor Uranus, right? Uh, along, with, uh, <laughs> along with Neptune, it doesn't get much attention. Yeah. No, really. yeah, yeah. Well, and since Voyager. Yeah. Pretty much. There is nothing. I've, Nothing has been done since the flybys in the 80s and 90s. So, yeah. So, is Neptune and Uranus are the ice giants, or would you say the icy moons the best places to be looking and trying to understand these high pressure ices more? Which which best which is the best place in our solar system? Or if exoplanets are better for it, which is which is the best place to go looking? Uh, definitely the solar system because we'll be able, as I said, to put seismometers on there and to study yeah. the interiors. And uh, I would say the best place for me is either uh, Ganymede or Titan and possibly Calisto. Uh, yeah, these are the three uh, main uh, uh, bodies that I think are the most interesting to see the relevance and importance of uh, a dense 
hot ices uh, for the uh, you know like the planetary structures. Um, Can this also be done with gravity measurements as well, or is it a seismometer really kind of crucial for understanding these structures? So gravity measurements are super useful uh, to get like a first idea of the mass distribution uh, inside a planetary body, uh, but it will only tell you the first thirty percent out of the body, really. Okay. Like the J one uh, and the J two uh, uh, moments of the moment of inertia are really good at constraining like you know like the the first 30 percent roughly when it goes below that uh, it's really hard to constrain anything and then seismology is like you know so much better at it where you can find like <laughs> things with like within a kilometer of resolution uh with just putting like a few seismometers uh so uh so gravity will help uh but so for example calisto uh um, uh, moment of inertia is not really well known. It's not really well constrained. Uh, so whenever we'll go back there, so it's happening with the JUICE mission, with the European Space Agency JUICE mission. Uh, I was going to mention that. I thought they were going to do some gravity measurements, but you need them to drop something on each of these worlds. Yeah, yeah, but no, the, the gravity measurements will help <laughs> definitely. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we we want everything. We just don't want just uh, oh, seismology. Yeah. But yeah, no. Eventually, if we want to understand the internal structure, we'll have to we'll have to send seismometers. I feel like. Right. It seems like we could we could get quite a bit of info from the solar system that can help to uh, inform general planetary theory, mm -hmm. right? But the solar system is lacking in one important uh, class of planet, right? And that's the the category somewhere between the Earth and and Neptune sized. Yeah. And in exoplanet science at the moment, this is a, a key question. What is the what does that transition look like? Do you see you know the the research into high pressure ices here in the solar system or observations from exoplanets being able to kind of advance our theories about that transition, that Fulton gap, you know, yeah. mystery a little bit more? Oh yeah, no, that's the, and that's definitely one of my main research, uh, you know, uh, topic. Like it's really like closing the gap between Earth and you know like the mini Neptune, like this you know the ocean super Earth. And uh, mini Neptunes with the you know the no very well known Fulton gap uh, happening at one point eight Earth radius something like that, and so I think our best way to actually understand what is the population in between is really to look at uh, the largest icy moons so Ganymede, Titan, and uh, Uranus and Neptune. And uh, this is the only way we'll have we will be able to close that gap at least theoretically um, uh, by basing our data in, on on the solar system objects. Uh, but really, like uh, we already like done that exercise. Uh, uh, you know, like th there's a lot of people working on trying like to uh, see, for example, what are like the Trappist uh, interior structures. Uh, you know, the Trappist one interior structures. So the Trappist one is a system where you have like potentially like three, four planets that could be extremely water-rich. Uh, uh, and uh, the uh, what they see is that uh, if you just take a, you know, and you make like a super Ganymede, you know, <laughs> with like these super uh, <laughs> words. So this, if you make a super Ganymede what's with like um, a, a rocky core the size of the Earth or a little bit smaller and just put like, you know, a thousand kilometer hydrosphere on top of it, what's happening? And the uh, you know the simple thermodynamics uh, predicts you that uh, uh, you will have depending on the surface temperature 
either ice or liquid ocean, uh, then uh, below the ice uh, notion, and uh, be, uh, very quickly uh, you will turn uh, your ocean into high pressure ices. And the re and with, with like a thickness that is like much thicker than the one you have on Ganymede, for example. And the reason is uh, is just because of gravity, really. Like you have a bigger uh, um, you know, a bigger rocky core, so the gravity is higher, so the pressure gradient increases much faster. So the pressure gradient is is greater. So you will actually cross the freezing point of water much faster at a much lower depth. So the bigger your rocky core is, the thinner your liquid ocean can be because of that. So you know that this is the kind of stuff you can start to play with. And so if you look at any of these. Um, uh, you know, uh, super earth, uh, you know, this, this water rich super earth. Uh, yeah, most of them, if they have like more than a percent or two of water uh, in mass, they probably have high pressure ices inside. Like you cross that, so I you know, you cross that, that line very, very quickly. I feel like it's it's probably a record that we've gone 35 minutes and not mentioned the H word. But what effect does that have on habitability? Because I would think... <laughs> Is there such a thing as too much water, right? If you have these this massive layer of high pressure ice, yeah. is that negatively affecting the habitability of the planet? Yeah, no, and that's that's that that is one of the major questions we have right now in the communities. Like, is high pressure ice is the bottleneck for habitability? Like, is that the that end? You know, right? And uh, uh, we don't have an answer to that yet, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because like if you have high pressure ices on top of rocks then you would imagine that the chemical exchange between the oceans and the, uh, and the rocks will be yep. highly limited, uh, yep. but that's considering a static high-pressure ices. And from what uh, the early uh, simulation that we saw uh, shows for Ganymede, for example, is that you will have very efficient convection, even at you know with uh, pockets of liquid uh, rising inside the high-pressure ices mantles. Uh, uh, so... We don't really have a good idea yet on how these could control, you know, like the exchanges of be, between the oceans and the and and the rocks. And there's and there is also all of these weirder effects, which is when you uh, increase the salinity of the liquids high enough, uh, the liquids can become more dense than the high pressure ices again. So you could have intermediate oh, wow. oceans each time you have like uh, another high pressure ice, you know, forming. You have these pockets of uh, brines forming, or even one forming at the bottom, uh, at the interface between the rock and the high-pressure ices. So we are just at the beginning of trying to understand these environments, and that's very exciting. Would you expect kind of crustal, rocky, continental material to be on top of these high-pressure ices? Or if you're expecting something with this much water, this much ice would they then have to be something like water world where it is fully ocean on the top i uh, know that would be uh the the rocks will be too dense to be present at the surface or even like being brought too much uh, during convection of the high pressure ices so you will have like water walls yeah yeah uh, so i mean that does sound like quite a limit for you know habitability as we know it and life that we know that has evolved here on the earth the continents and the oceans and the way that that all moved around seems to be quite important to that what do you what do you think of the idea of these water worlds do you like that idea as something to for answering this question are we alone in the universe yeah no no it's a, it's a, it's a very fair question uh my understanding is that the um, the importance of plate tectonics and uh, crustal recycling 
uh, is still more or less in the debate in terms of... Uh, yeah, that's true. You know, Andrew like, couldn't uh, attest to any of that yes. huge amount of debate in any astrobiology. Because yeah. like, we don't even have a reason to be... like We, we don't have an actual proof that uh, continents, uh, you know, emerged continents existed in the early Earth. You know, we don't even know that there was actually, you know, erosion, you know, uh, uh, you know, rain or uh, other types of erosion happening in the early Earth. Like most of the continent could have been underwater at the beginning. So uh, I I still, and it seems that, you know, at least for half of the community, uh, <laughs> life appeared in, uh, you know, at the bottom of the ocean. So uh, in like, for example, in hydrothermal vents uh, type uh, structures. Uh, where you could have these very strong uh, chemical gradients, uh, you know, and uh, oxygen reductive gradients, where you know uh, early life could have start to feed on, and uh, that is the type of environment you could expect in an ocean world, like definitely on Europa, uh, on Enceladus. Also, uh, that is also one of the main uh, targets for uh, habitability in our solar system. Uh, but like, why not if even if you have high pressure ices? If you can like bring the you know the nutrients uh, through convection, maybe it's enough. Uh, you know, like uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of research to be done, and we don't have the final answer yet to the you know uh, is high pressure ice is the you know the dead end of habitability in ocean wells. I think that's actually an incredibly positive note to end on there, mm-hmm. uh, and thank you so much for that because that was a great conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you again, uh, Baptiste, for that wonderful uh, conversation about uh, ices and all their forms. Exocast. Uh, now it's the time of the show where we add another enigmatic world to our eccentric list of exoplanets that we've been collecting since the show started. Well, ever since we've had a guest on, we like to ask our guests to select their favourite planet to add to our ever-growing list. So, Baptiste, which planet have you chosen? So, I've chosen uh, TRAPPIST-1G. Uh, because okay. it is uh, possibly right, that is possibly the best uh, ocean worlds with high pressure ices, uh, and also because it's gonna you know uh, it's gonna probably be observed a lot in the coming years. So I think it's <laughs> a very exciting planet. I had a problem with choosing between one G and one F. Uh, they are somehow okay. a bit similar, uh, but yeah, uh, I'm excited about those two specifically. Because they are the, our best shot at having like uh, ocean worlds, uh, high pressure ice o- ocean worlds. And as you mentioned, there's already some some studies, you know, modeling studies looking into, you know, water delivery, water content of those planets, and it seems like they're throwing up some some pretty interesting results with the potential to observe uh, at some point in the future as well, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first time we have two planets from the same system in our list, which is... Yeah. Uh, Did we have one each last time? Or? We have one each already, I think. Yeah, yes. I, I think... That's fine, yeah. though. We'll look. <laughs> yeah, I And checked. I think I chose that one as a... Like, at the time, no one actually knew if it was a real planet or not. And I think I chose it for that that reason. <laughs> um, so... But, I mean, TRAPPIST-1 is so interesting. We can allow two planets from that. In. I think we're going to have to allow two planets from there. I think that, with that... I don't know that that's the end of the planets that we're going to have to allow from the trappist Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just keep them coming. <laughs> but I like G. I'll accept G. That's a good one. Thank you. <laughs> right. And I guess on that note, it's a good time to thank Baptiste again for adopting a planet and for the wonderful uh, chat we have. So, uh, merci Baptiste. Yeah, you're welcome. That was a pleasure to talk with you all.
And also, I just want to take this opportunity to thank Baptiste again for providing the French translation of our ExoCup cards from last year. So uh, if you speak French and you prefer to learn about your exoplanets in French, you can check out our website where all of our ExoCup cards uh, from last year are, are there with French translation. Well, thanks again, Baptiste. For you listeners out there, don't forget to look out for our other two episodes this month in which we ask how many exoplanets really are there and also round up this month's news. Uh, but for now, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, bye. 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 Exocast. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford is a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne is the Tess Kops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby is a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Pollington Bear. You can find more information on exocast.org. I have exoplanets. Uh, should I wait for Hugh to return? I don't know where he's gone. Hugh, Hugh kind of does I think the thing. squirrels are in my bathroom upstairs, but I don't have time to go check. Okay. Sorry, there's <laughs> squirrels in your bathroom. <laughs> okay. Okay. Classic. Slightly different name. <laughs> Exocast.